Open your Bibles, please, to John chapter 17. A couple of years ago, I clicked on a website while doing an internet search, and it sent a virus to my computer that was activated when I clicked on what looked like virus protection. And we ended up having to take all the files off my computer. Thankfully, we could save them. Only lost one file and Hubbard's diligent work, which is being, which is being recreated because we had a paper copy. Uh, but uh, had to reload all the program, you know, scrub the computer clean. And a and, uh, computer expert friend of mine says, get this certain program. This is the program that really watches for these kind of things better than anything else. So I got it. And we've been uh, watching for things ever since. Well, this week I was doing an internet search and uh, clicked on something. And right away this, this message, oh, your computer may have been infected with a virus. You need to click here on this antivirus. And I thought, no, no, no. I hit the red X to close everything out. And I turned on the spy sweeper and it went and found the nasty program and quarantined it. And I hit the delete button and I said, yes, there's the thrill of victory right there, buddy. The Spy Sweeper program is always on guard. It's always looking. And every day it updates. It, uh, it updates its, its virus definitions. And it says you are now protected against, you know, 400,000 viruses or something like that. Isn't that amazing? People just sit around and create viruses to infect computers. That's all they're doing all day long. <laughs> Must be. Wow. I'm so glad to have some on guard protection you know the same thing is true in our spiritual life and we don't see the danger there either because god says we don't fight against flesh and blood we fight against spiritual forces of wickedness and satan and his hosts and the world that he controls are always after us and that's why the, the blessing that we learn about in john 17 is so important and and so encouraging when it tells us about the ministry of Christ. Let's read about that ministry from John 17. We considered the first five verses last week, but we're going to read that all just so we get the feeling of, of Christ's prayer. Jesus spoke these words, and he lifted up his eyes to heaven, and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may also glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O oh Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and they have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. 
And I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they may also be sanctified by the truth. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Jesus prayed for the disciples, but according to verse 20, he didn't just pray for the disciples who became the apostles. He prayed for us. And we've been learning from this prayer. And today we've come to verse 12. When Christ prays for us, he says, While I was with them in the world, I kept them. And then in verse 13, he says, But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. In the light of the danger that we are constantly in, Christ prays for our joy. I'm going to say something dangerous because if you misquote me, it's really going to mess some things up for you and a lot of other people. God wants you to be happy. I believe that with all my heart. Now, I don't believe that he wants you to be happy necessarily according to your definition because what does christ pray for he says father i want you to fulfill my joy in them christ wants us to have his joy near as i can figure whatever god's definition of joy is it has to be better than my definition Christ prays for our joy. This is very similar to what he said in John 15. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. Is it possible that the happiness we seek is a half-full kind of happiness? We think, oh, if I could just have this, do this, be this, go here, go there, not go here, not go there then everything would be great. Christ says, I want your joy to become full by you experiencing my joy. What is the joy that Christ asks the Father to give us? Well, the first joy that he asks the Father to give us is this, the joy of eternal life with God in heaven. Uh, you know, here's the classic verse from John chapter 3. For God so loved the world, he loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life is there any joy more important than the joy of knowing you're headed for heaven i would submit to you there isn't there's a lot of joys we want there's a lot of joys we crave but if you're a christian and if you've been a christian for a while 
I'm going to guess that you've forgotten how great it is to wake up in the morning knowing where you're going, no matter what happens during the day. Every once in a while, God brings something around to remind us of how great that joy is. He brings around the death of a friend or a loved one or somebody in the church family. I went to a funeral this week of a retired deputy sheriff, and I didn't know the fellow. I didn't know anything about him, but I went because uh, Honor Guard was going, and I thought, you know, I'm the chaplain. I should go and just be part of, the, of you know, my fellows being there and come to find out the guy knew the Lord. And there was a Christian preacher preaching God's truth. What a blessing that was. That was so great. It was so great to, to hear that there was hope, that we didn't grieve as those who have no hope. We still grieve, but there's joy and there's confidence in the midst of it. Wow. We don't have to go to bed at night wondering if the Lord our soul will keep. We know that we don't have to grab all the gusto that life has to offer because we only have one life. It's true we only have one life, but it doesn't end here. It just keeps right on going. We know that he who dies with the most toys doesn't win, and so we don't have to play that game. He who dies with Jesus wins. And so we face life, and we face death with a settled joy, a confidence. Yeah, today's not a perfect day, but you know someday it's going to be a great day. And we're able to walk with that kind of joy. Uh, do you know that joy today? Somebody this week talked to me about, about a loved one who, who lost a loved one. And they, they, they don't talk about them. They, the particular issue she was bringing up is he's never been to the graveside. And I said, well, this was a Christian I was talking to. I said, think about it. If he doesn't know the Lord, why would he want to go to a cemetery? But those of us who know the Lord can go or we cannot go and we can say, you know, my loved one is with the Lord. Praise Him. We have confidence and joy that God puts in our heart. What a great joy that is. But that's not the only joy that God gives us. Because Christ Himself said, I want you to have not only my joy, but my peace every day, the, the daily kind of joy. Peace I live with you. My peace I give you. Not like the world gives. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. The world's peace is the absence of difficulty. Christ's peace is present in the midst of difficulty. I had an acquaintance, an unbeliever, who was a, a psychologist and a fear specialist, a phobia specialist. He helped people get over their fears. We had an occasion to travel out away from the city to work with a group of, of firefighters one night, and as we were traveling home in the dark on a 50-mile-an-hour country road, he was scared. And I thought, I didn't say it, but I thought, what in the world's wrong with you? Well, what's wrong with him is he has no certainty about his future. 
And he has no certainty about today. And he has no God within him giving him, giving him true peace. Apparently, in the tranquility of an office, he can help people deal with fear. But in the real world where there is some danger, however small it might be, there is no tranquility because the world's tranquility is only in the absence of difficulty. Christ said, I want to give you peace now. I want to give you peace in the midst of difficulty. The Christ life is a peaceful life Above all, because we have a loving Heavenly Father. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to Him in doing good as to a faithful Creator. We should be living in peace, not because the world is perfect, but because God is. And because He's the one caring for us every day. There's one more element of joy, though, that Christ had. When we think about getting his joy in us, this is an interesting one. And that's the joy of a life-strengthening purpose. A life-strengthening purpose. Listen to this interchange. You're familiar with it. From John chapter 4, Jesus has just spent time talking to the woman at the well, sharing with her about uh, eternal life. And afterwards, it says, In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, has somebody brought him some food? He thought, you know, Jesus got a stash, you know, not telling anybody about it. Jesus said to them, no, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields for they're already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and he gathers fruit for eternal life that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. Now, those of you that know me know I don't miss too many meals. I know that's hard to believe looking at me here. Jesus wasn't saying it's virtuous to starve yourself. Some of the foolishness that gets passed around for spirituality in some church circles is just that. It's foolishness. It's not more guard, godly to somehow starve yourself and, and, and you know, give yourself deprivation. That's not what he's saying. But what he was saying was this. When I do God's work, it strengthens me. There is a nurturing element to doing the work of God. Jesus said doing God's work fed his soul. I had occasion this week to grab, just grab something for dinner, you know. Had a couple of nights where the time between the day's activities and the night's activities was short, so I just grabbed something, you know. You just eat something. And afterwards, you're kind of going, okay, whatever. <laughs> and later at night, then you have something else, and you're still going, whatever. You know that feeling. I wasn't hungry, but I wasn't happy. You know what? There's a lot of pursuits in life that leave us like that. We think, well, whatever, I'll just take that. And so we're busy. And maybe what we're doing isn't really distasteful, but it doesn't really feed our soul. You know, there's only one thing that will feed your soul and it's righteousness in all of its forms. And one of the forms is serving God. 
I know it's, it's hard at times to, to look at some activity at church or maybe serving your neighbor and thinking, oh, you know, I'd just like to sit in the lazy boy tonight. Boy, I know that feeling. You know, there are some Sundays when if I wasn't the preacher, I wouldn't be here because I really don't feel that great. And I'm not whining, but I'm just telling you, I understand that feeling. I'm not some superhuman ministry whatever, you know. No. But I also know the feeling of saying, okay, God, I'm going to put one foot in front of the other, and I'm going to serve you. And at the end of it, I'm kind of walking like this. That was cool. That was fun. That was great. Where does that come from? It comes from our soul being fed by God when we do God's work. I would submit to you that there is a joy in that that you cannot know anywhere else. And Jesus said, I want you to have my joy. Listen to what David said, the way David put this. Um... A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. That means when he was being chased around the desert by Saul. Okay? Oh God, you are my God. Early I will seek you. My soul is thirsty for you. My flesh is hungry for you. I'm going to paraphrase it there. In a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. So I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory because your loving kindness is better than life. My lips shall praise you. Thus I will bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness. And my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. Marrow and fatness, if you don't know, is a reference to things that people eat off of an animal. I know you don't eat marrow and you don't eat fat because we were raised that it's bad. But there are people who do and they think it's wonderful and it's a nurturing part of food. And so he's, he's saying some of the sweetest parts of the food, that's how you are to me. David's soul was fed by God. <clears throat> And so Jesus prays that God would give us the joy of Christ. And his joy is not a maybe, but a for sure, because he asked God to do so, and Christ's prayers are always answered. But our joy is only for sure in Christ. You can pursue joy in all kinds of ways, but it won't happen. But it will happen if we receive Christ as our Savior and walk in the way of Christ our Lord. Christ prays for our joy. The second thing that we want to look at from his prayer today here is he prays particularly for our spiritual protection. Look with me at verse 14 of John 17, please. Jesus says, I have given them your word, and the result of that is the world has hated them. Because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them or protect them from the evil one. Christ says, first of all, we need protection from the world. In John 3, we read this. This is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds are evil. 
If you live a godly life, if you live a godly life, your godliness shines a light on the sin of unbelievers, even when you're not trying to do so. Very few of us get up in the morning and think, boy, I'm going to make some sinners squirm today. And we don't do it because, frankly, when they squirm, it gets uncomfortable for us. And God doesn't call us to convict or condemn the sinners. He doesn't. He calls us to live our life. But um, if I could say it, unfortunately, and, and it's not unfortunate for us or God, it's only unfortunate for the unbelievers, it makes them feel uncomfortable when we live righteously. Paul wrote this in Philippians For many walk, of whom I told you often now, even weeping, they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. They set their mind on earthly things, whose God is their belly. The idea of the belly in in the Greek world in which the New Testament was written had to written had to do with appetites, in particular physical appetites. And so this is a way that God is saying the worldly life is all about physical pleasure. Uh, Whether that is what we would call immoral pleasure, as in sex outside of marriage, or maybe it's just about food pleasure, or visual pleasure, um, whose God is their belly. Secondly, he says their glory is their shame. The world speaks about sin The world speaks about sin as the ultimate demonstration of sophistication and maturity. You understand what I just said? The world talks about sin as though it is sophisticated. If you read a movie review or an, or an interview with an actor who was in a movie where there was a tremendous amount of foul language, they'll say, look, this is the way people talk. This is the real world. We have to, our art has to be true to life. And if you can't tolerate it, then you're unsophisticated. If you're really mature, you want to deal with the nitty-gritty of real life. God says that the unbelievers glory in that, and yet it's a shame. Many unbelievers will talk about us Christians as though we are homophobic, that we are afraid of the homosexual world. In fact, what they'll really talk about is the fact that if you were really secure in your sexuality, other people's sexuality wouldn't bother you at all. Let me paraphrase that. If you were more mature and sophisticated, you'd be more open-minded toward sin. And so when you go out and the discussion turns to those topics and you say, no, I don't think that's right, Well, you're an ignorant rube living in the 50s. What's wrong with you? Come on, this is the the new century, man. Get with it. Scripture also says that they set their mind on earthly things. They don't have the interest of people in their heart. If they can get a million-dollar bonus when the country is economically going to hell in a handbasket, they'll get it. Because they don't care about other people. And frankly, we need to look in our hearts and say, if I was in that place, would I be getting it? 
because my mind is on earthly things? When we stand up and say, you've got to wait till marriage. What we're really saying is your way of life is wrong. And that rubs the wrong way. When we say that every time an embryo is created by a man and a woman, it is a living human being, we are calling abortion murder. And that cuts against the grain. When we say, please don't use the name of Jesus as a curse word, we're saying that their language is sinful. When we refuse to take things that don't belong to us from work, we are saying that they are thieves for doing so. We don't have to quote the Ten Commandments. Our normal day-to-day walk in Christ points out their sin, even if that's not our intention. Why do you think there are so many people trying to get the Ten Commandments plaques taken out of those courtrooms where they exist? Because every time they read it, it says, don't commit adultery, don't bear false witness, honor God, and so on. And it just reminds them that their life is not right according to God's definition. And the result of that is, the world will not like you. Now, I'm fully aware, and in fact, to some extent, I'm in one of those positions. When I serve as a chaplain with the sheriff's office, if I do a good job, there are unbelievers who will appreciate what I do. But I'm here to tell you, if I speak my whole mind... There are some unbelievers who will not like what I do. And the same thing is true of every one of us, Christian. And we need to understand that. Now, as we go out in the world, we're thinking, hey, what's the problem? Can't we all just get along? You know, we're kind of like a a black Labrador puppy. It's a great world. And we live our Christian life, and it, it rubs people. And so Jesus says, whether you know it or not, you're not of the world, and you need protection from the world. But we also need protection from the prince of the world. We need protection from the devil. Listen to this. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Let me go back to my sermon introduction. The devil and his demons are like computer viruses, constantly moving through the internet trying to say, who can we get a hold to today? And we're not aware of it, of course, because he is a spiritual being. We do not see him. He does not have a red coat and tail. He doesn't have any physical body. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin. In other words, the the lifestyle of the Christian is righteous. But he who has not been born of God But he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Folks, we need to understand that the world system, the society of the world, lies under the sway or the influence of the devil. The devil and his demons work both personally and through the world of unbelievers. Now, let me give you some scenarios. What would the devil do if he was completely, at, completely free to do whatever he wanted? I think the devil would burn down church buildings in an effort to discourage us from meeting. The devil would cause governments to create building codes and zoning rules that almost make it impossible for churches to build buildings. 
Oh, wait, that's already happened. The devil would cause your boss to make you work on Sunday. The devil would cause your boss to pass over you for promotion and give it to his sinner buddy. The devil, if he was completely free, would tempt you to be upset with others in the body of Christ so that you get isolated and spiritually discouraged. The devil would like to cause disunity in the church so that necessary ministry improvements and personnel additions and facility upgrades cannot get done. So the ministry cannot go forward. The devil would like to give you so much fun in life that you find it impossible to read the word and pray and serve as you should. The devil would like to cause you to get fired, to tempt you toward anxiety about the future. Or he'd like to cause you to have a promotion and a raise so you won't feel the need to depend on God for your daily bread. Maybe he would cause you to be sick at just the right time so you don't feel like doing your sermon preparation. The devil has all kinds of evil desires, but here's the truth for the Christian. Listen to the Apostle Paul, what he said about his... He, he was uh, arrested because of uh, work he did for the Lord. And listen what he says. At my first defense, my legal defense in the court... No one, no human being stood with me, but everyone forsook me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. I think that's a reference to Satan. They didn't routinely cast people to the lions because they had broken law or were convicted of some crime. Yeah, they persecuted Christians that way. Paul is saying, look, God stood with me and he delivered me from what Satan wanted to do to me. That's the essence of what Christ is praying. He's saying, Father, protect me. Protect them. The, the evil one is going to come after them. He's going to cause all kinds of things in their lives, but you can protect. That's why this scripture is true. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation or the test will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. The devil wants to bring such circumstances on you that you are overrun. And God says, isn't going to happen. Because Jesus is praying and God is answering and controlling your world. That's why this is true. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession. He prays for the saints according to the will of God. That's talking about Jesus praying for the saints according to the will of God. Therefore, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. That verse is true because Jesus is praying for your spiritual protection. We can get up and walk confidently through our life knowing that God is going to make things work, not because we are so great, but because Christ is. That's why this is true. He who dwells 
in the secret or the private place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God, and in Him I will trust. Surely He shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. He shall cover you with His feathers, and under His wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. You shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor of the arrow that flies by day, nor of the pestilence that walks in the darkness, nor of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Only with your eyes you will look and see the reward of the wicked. Isn't that tremendous? That's the truth for the child of God. It doesn't mean that there won't be some hardship in life, but it means that God is always going to be there protecting, caring for us, making sure that we survive. That's why this is true. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our body. Wow. Do you remember this familiar verse? You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. John Phillips put it this way, the evil one is no match for the Holy One. That's our promise. That's our, that's our perspective. That's our blessing. That's why, Jesus, that's why Peter wrote these words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, it does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Being on Jesus' prayer list, as all Christians are, doesn't mean you won't have challenges. It does mean you absolutely will survive and thrive and grow through those challenges. Did you notice that Jesus specifically said, I do not pray that you will take them out of the world, verse 15. Jesus knew good and well that the place of hardship, the place of challenge, the place of trial is the world. He says, I'm not praying for you to take them out of that. I'm praying for you to protect them. I'm praying for you to protect them from the temper. Tempter. He did not pray for our shelter from discomfort, but for our safety against the attack of the tempter. And as we studied last week, we understand that Christ only prays perfect prayers that get answered perfectly. But there's a requirement here. There is a requirement. Certainly there have been folks over the years who have said, well, I, I, I named the name of Christ. You know, when I was... When I was eight years old, I prayed that sinner's prayer. Why don't I have the peace of God in my life right now? Well, it could be because of the truth of Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2, 6 says this, As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. 
so walk in him, rooted and built up and established in the faith. So the question I ask today is, are you walking in Christ? All of these blessings we've been looking at are ours from Christ if we walk in him. He says, I've prayed to God that he'll give you my joy. But we have to ask ourselves, are we walking in Christ? If you're here for the first time, especially, I would ask you, have you ever believed in Christ as your Savior? Because if you haven't, none of what I've said today applies to you. You need to come to faith in Christ and be born again and become a child of God. And once you do, you need to walk in Him. This past week, a woman left her two children in the car with the keys in it and the engine running while she went into Walmart. And two other women got in the car and drove off. I don't know which is more amazing, that two women apparently were watching for the opportunity to steal a car or that a mom would leave her car running with kids in it in a public place. I'm dumbfounded by both of those, frankly. But this is very much like our spiritual walk in the world. The devil is always looking for someone to devour. But we don't have to fear if we walk in Christ. Heavenly Father, help us. Help us to walk in Christ. Help us not to think we can handle things ourselves. We can, we've got the strength. We've got the power. We've got the wisdom. Help us to know that we don't, but Christ does. Thank you for protecting us. Thank you for protecting us from so many things that we cannot possibly see. Thank you. Make your life... A reality. Make the joy of Christ a reality in us as we walk in Him. I pray in His name. Amen.